Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. What does the combination of a U.S. poet laureate, a renowned opera singer chef, and several of today's foremost musicians share these days with Laura Downs? The answer is insightful conversation on the NPR web series Amplify with Laura Downs. Season two of the NPR music series has begun and new episodes are being added. Later in the program, the host, pianist Laura Downs, will tell us about her recent conversations with visionary black artists on some of the most important and difficult topics confronting them now. First, the oldest poems offer new perspective on key global issues today. Inverse is a new series of short films exploring ancient poetry as a prism through which to understand our modern world. Writer and filmmaker Jack Jewers created this series. He joins us now via Zoom. Jack Jewers, welcome to City Lights. Hello, it's wonderful to be here. Inverse is a collection of five of the world's oldest surviving poems reimagined for the 21st century. How did you decide which poems? you wanted to reconceptualize? Well, the genesis of this project was when I stumbled across this lovely line of poetry. I wish I could say that it fell out of a book in the Bodleian Library or something. It was on Instagram. (laughs) Um, And it just said, and girls in silk, little fans in hand, frolic with fireflies in flight. And I thought that was so beautiful. And then I did this double take when I saw underneath the age said um, 8th century AD. And um, it's Chinese, it's by a poet called Du Fu. And uh, that kind of led me down a rabbit hole, first of this very ancient Chinese poetry, um, of which that actually is not even a particularly old example, (laughs) comparatively. They go much further back than that. And then other cultures, uh, Mesopotamian, Indian, Egyptian. 
And really, I just kind of trawled through these until I found the ones that spoke to me. And they, in a way, I know it's a little bit of a filmmaking cliche, but they kind of selected themselves because the images seemed so vivid to me and so real and so contemporary that uh, that was my criteria, the ones that spoke to me. I was also keen to have a good spread. You know, I didn't want to just sort of plunge into one particular culture. I wanted to, to cover sort of, you know, different parts of the world and different traditions. So that was a criteria too. But yeah, mostly it was just the ones I loved. Oh, I am astonished at how contemporary these poems feel. Yes. Why did you want to make them into short films? Well, I think that's sort of the alchemy of the filmmaking brain, really. You know, this was, at first, this was just a lovely thing to read and to discover. And then I think if you talk to most filmmakers, most artists in general, you don't have to go very far down the road of just being inspired until you think, well, how can I make, how can I make this into, you know, into a project? And at the time, uh, at the very beginning of this, I was working with a poetry charity and trying to find something to do with them. And so I then developed this into a series of films that really spoke to the connection of today with our ancient past, our truly ancient past, and gives a sort of perspective on time, really, and how in many ways, you know, the people of thousands of years ago were no different to us. You know, it's very clear if you read some of these poems, you know, they uh, they had the same hopes, the same aspirations, the same desires, the same fears. Uh, but what I didn't expect was for them to be as, you know, as funny as they were or as romantic as they were or as inspiring as they were. I, I didn't, I thought I'd have to look really hard to find the connections. To me, they, they just sort of leapt out at me. And then the project evolved and for various reasons that original version didn't happen. And then when uh, the world kind of came to a juddering halt last year, I found ways of completing this project in lockdown and creating something that sort of took on an extra poignancy that I didn't anticipate in the beginning. Hmm. Can you briefly tell us about each of the poems? They are gorgeous. Oh, yes, of course. Well, the oldest, uh, I'll see if I can work in chronological order. Uh, the oldest is, uh, well, it's untitled, but we call it My Heart, which is from Mesopotamia in uh, 1800 BCE. Essentially, it's a sort of stream of consciousness from the perspective of a woman who quite simply, is head over heels in love with somebody and kind of doesn't know whether that person likes them back, you know, and uh, are they going to notice her? Uh, is she trying too hard? Uh, There's lovely, lovely bit where she talks about, you know, I put no paint on my eyes. I'm not even anointed. What that means is I've got no makeup on. I'm not wearing any deodorant. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm a mess because of this, you know, this, this guy. So that to me, naturally translated itself into something to do with kind of dating and uh, especially in the modern age we all live through our phones and particularly during the pandemic you know everything is remote that then became uh, a woman on her on her own uh, talking into her phone about this guy that she loves the next oldest poem is an extract from an astonishingly beautiful and sensual egyptian poem the original translates as the flower song. We call it love song. 
and uh, it is I think it's about the most romantic piece of writing I've ever read actually it is deeply personal it's very tender quite erotic in places um, even more so in others that we didn't use I have to say uh, but that I then translated as different couples different people uh, kissing each other very simple uh, and I have to say now when I watch it it's extraordinary how something so simple as that now feels so distant you know all these people just in the same room you know this kind of intimacy so that sort of took shape that way there's another one which the original Chinese title um, translates as he he waters his horse by a bridge in the long wall I wish I spoke Chinese the translations are so beautiful but often you could you get a sense of the translator trying really hard to make it work because I don't think it often works directly, you know, and that's kind of the case in the title. Um, we called that Long Wall, and that is that was written in 150 BC, and that is the story of a woman who is clearly longing for somebody who is missing, whether it be because of a war or because you know they've just left I don't know and I translated that to be about refugees which seemed very prescient in this day and age particularly with what is the tragic you know years of tragic events that have been going on in Syria and in the Mediterranean Sea and then then we have a lovely little extract from Ovid which is basically admonishing people who you know we all know those types banging on about how you know the the past the past was always better and I think now we also live in a, a world where that can be used for political ends quite nefariously and so then I wanted to to kind of explore this and celebrate what the world is today and particularly in terms of diversity and kind of the acceptance of you know, of, of different lifestyles and genders and all this kind of thing. And so I, I matched that up with this wonderful footage of um, uh, a drag parade. It's actually a boat filled with drag queens, kind of, you know, all these many sort of different, you know, wonderful flamboyant characters from Amsterdam. The last one was a uh, poem by the Sanskrit poet Kalidasa called Salutation to the Dawn, which is probably, it's from the fourth century AD, and it is probably the best known of the collection because it often makes its way into sort of meditation and mindfulness because it is a very you know it is a very mindful a very centered poem but I I kind of wanted to go in a different way its messages indeed it ends with today well lived makes every yesterday a dream of happiness and every tomorrow a vision of hope which is marvelous but for me that brought up images of people fighting for a better future. So um, I built up this thing about street protesters and young people and kind of, you know, channeling their anger and wanting to make the world better. So, you know, it is, it is um, namaste, yes, but also smash the patriarchy. Hmm. I love how you use the current vernacular for context with, I mean, listening to you speak and reading about your project regarding the Ovid, you said the Romans knew how to have a good time. Yeah, that, that, right. That's subtle and an understatement to say the least, Jack. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> well, would you read the flower song? Of course. To hear your voice is pomegranate wine to me. I draw life from hearing it. 
could I see you with every glance, it would be better for me than to eat or to drink. If I could just be the washerwoman doing her laundry for one month only, I would be faithful to pick up the bundles, sturdy to beat clean the heavy linens, but gentle to touch those fine spun things lying closest to the body I love. And I'd say, standing there tall in the shallows, look at my fish, love, how it lies in my hand how my fingers caress it, slip down its sides. But then I'd say softer, eyes bright with your seeing. A gift, love, no words. Come closer and look, it's all me. I wish I were your mirror so that you always looked at me. I wish I were your garment so that you would always wear me. I wish I were the water that washes your body and the band around your breasts, and the beads around your neck. Oh, my beautiful one, I wish I were part of your life. With your hand in mine, your love will be returned. I implore my heart, if my true love stays away tonight, I shall be like someone already in the grave. Are you not my health and my life? You had me at I wish I were your mirror. Oh, isn't it beautiful? It's so lovely. I do have a, sli a, a slightly funny story about how this one came about. Oh, please. Um, which is that I was in Dublin in 2017. I was judging a film festival. And I don't know if you've ever been to, to Dublin, but it has this exquisite museum called the Chester Beatty Library. It's my absolute favourite small museum in the world, filled with ancient, ancient manuscripts. They have the oldest extant a fragment of the Bible. They have ancient Torahs and Qurans. It's magnificent. Go, go, uh, when we can travel again. Yes. But um, uh, I was looking at this little piece of Egyptian papyrus and this um, this security guard kind of sidled up to me and I won't attempt his, his wonderful accent, but he said, um, you know, we did have a translation of that. And I said, oh, yes. And he said, yeah, but we couldn't put it up because it's far too rude. And this is a family <laughs> museum. And so, of course, I, well, I was just beginning to think of this project. So I said, well, I have to find it <laughs> to go look at it. And so uh, that led me down the kind of rabbit hole to the flower song. So, you know, thanks to, the, to that random security guard in Dublin. <laughs> that day. Oh, oh that, and the discretion of the Irish. Oh, yes, exactly. Yes, I thought that was very considerate. Well, in the video related to the poem, you have many different couples of various backgrounds caressing one another. Jack, how important was diversity in selecting those you wanted to film? Diversity was extremely important. That is, if you like, the visual message of the film, which is that, you know, we come in all different shapes and colors and genders and everything, and we are all equally deserving of and capable of love. And so, yes, I did I did deliberately pick a very diverse selection of couples, um, only one of whom had ever met before, before the day. That's amazing. <laughs> so did, yes. you, did you prompt them to be so natural in front of the camera? Did you have well, to direct them? <laughs> yes, I did to a degree. I mean, the, a large part of the, the impact is, of course, down to the actors themselves. You know, they, they did a wonderful job. But... You know, the thing about film sets is that they are, they're very, they're very businesslike places. They're very noisy places, even very small ones like this. They're, they're kind of loud and they're bright and they're hot and they're sweaty, you know. Um, and so to walk into that 
uh, and then meet a complete stranger and basically say, you know, you've got to make out for five minutes. <laughs> it's quite a tough sell. Um, so I did have a technique for this, which is that I, I started off each of the couples, first of all, you know, I mean, it goes without saying, the sets had to be completely kind of safe spaces and respectful and fun and no egos and nothing like that. Um, but I would start out by getting each couple to simply look into each other's eyes for five whole minutes and they could react however they liked. They could laugh, they could cry, you know, they could pull faces, they could do whatever they wanted. But the rule was they could not look away. And um, the effect of that was this accelerated creation of intimacy between them, because you learn a lot about somebody looking into their eyes. And it's not an easy thing to do for five minutes. Um, but then after that, I think they all sort of felt that they knew each other a little and they certainly felt more comfortable with each other. And I had all of the reactions I've just listed. Um, the, the tears were happy, I have to say. Uh, no one was that uncomfortable. Um, and then, yes, and then I sort of said, and now just gently touch each other a bit, you know, on the face and on the arm. And, and then after they've been doing that for about 10 minutes and everyone was very relaxed, I just, you know, sort of, Kiss, go, do it. And um, and they, boy, did they, I think, quite spectacularly well. Oh, yes. And and they were actors. They were actors, yes. All of them were actors. The older couple featured in that film, um, a lovely, lovely couple called Alfred and Layla Hoffman. He is 95, I believe, and she's a little younger. Um, they've been together for something like 60 years. So they were the exception. Um, they, they were already together and I have to say absolutely stole everybody's hearts. Um, during the the bit that opens the film, actually, when they're sort of huddled together, it's a very sweet shot and he's sort of holding her head. I said, just as a kind of improvisation, really, I said, wait, Alfred, could you talk to Layla about some of your memories, you know, some of the things you remember from when you were very young and you were getting together? And just very quietly, he just started whispering about the first time they ever went on a date. And it was Leicester Square in London, 1956, I think, and how he saw her get off the bus and his heart did a little flutter. And honestly, there was not a dry eye in the studio. Oh, my. The poem, My Heart Flutters Hastily, you mentioned dates back to ancient Mesopotamia. Please tell us about the film My Heart and how you had to navigate COVID-19 for the filming process. That one was so strange. Uh, it was uh, a challenge but also an opportunity, as they say, because uh, I could only direct remotely. You know, it all had to be done with me directing over Zoom and the actress, very talented woman called Joanne Chu, videoed the whole thing like a selfie on her phone, which was fine because that was the, that was the concept anyway. But I did have to get used to this odd style of directing, which was a little more akin to theatre. You know, it, it required a little more kind of trust because although I could see what she was doing, you know, I have the view of a spectator rather than, you know, more usual for film directing when you're you're right there and you're looking at them and you can see every every facial expression and, and every intonation. But it also meant that I could could choose anyone, you know, anywhere in the world. And I knew Joanne a little from um, there's a lovely web series called Three Chen Sisters. Check it out on YouTube. It's very funny. And she played one of the parts in that. And I'd kind of 
you know, as you do, you often earmark people and think, oh, quite nice to work with that person one day. And so she sprang to mind and um, uh, said yes. And so I, I directed her while she was sitting in Los Angeles and I was sitting in my, you know, my shed at home near London. And it was weird, very weird, but it was fun. Hmm. We talked a bit about the salutation to the dawn. How does this poem become such a rallying cry for protesting? (laughs) That's a good question. I think because of how it focuses on the idea of, well, today well-lived makes every yesterday a dream of happiness and every tomorrow a vision of hope. That's how it ends. And so I thought, well, if you make the most of today, if today is well-lived, tomorrow brings hope you know, that that led me down a path trying to attach a kind of contemporary feel to it, you know, and something that spoke about the world today and its problems and its obsessions and its, you know, its needs. When we filmed this one, there was a lot of protests going on around the world. Uh, Where I lived, there was a lot of kind of street protests because of things like Brexit. And in America, there were various very tragic, very awful kind of police shootings and things like that. And so it was, I was very mindful of that. And so I wanted to sort of pay a little tribute to the people who were, you know, especially the young people who were out there on the streets expressing this kind of this need, this desire, this demand for a better tomorrow. And so, yes, it became, it, it just became a slightly counterintuitive way to approach the material as a, as a rallying cry rather than a meditation. Yes, because the opening line <laughs> reminded me of why the word mantra has made it into common usage. Yes, yes. And so look to this day for it is life, the very life of life. I remember the note I gave the narrator, uh, an actress called Emma Kniebuhr, and I said, you have to imagine, <laughs> it's a little pop culture reference here, you have to imagine you're Daenerys Targaryen and you're on top of a dragon and you're holding a sword aloft and you're saying, it's not look to this day for it is life, it's look to this day. <laughs> <laughs> it's Henry V, it's all of that, you know. <laughs> okay, it is not the gauzy colored mantra I imagined it to be. <laughs> <laughs> Namaste and smash the patriarchy. Okay, those are the mantras. Would you describe the effect that you use in the film The Dawn? Oh, with all the people standing still, you mean? Yeah, so I had this kind of vision of a protest or a series of protests frozen in time. And uh, initially I thought, it wouldn't it be wonderful to use an effect they call... Uh, well, time slicing or bullet time as another way it's referred to, uh, where the action stands still and yet the camera moves around. And I very quickly discovered that that was out of our budget by a magnitude of several hundred. (laughs) It was not going to happen on the money we had. So uh, instead, we built it around people standing very, very still and uh, various practical effects. So things like there's a, there's a, a shot with a, a young woman throwing a bottle. And so we have this, this bottle made of, it's actually made of sugar glass um, and it's suspended from the air by a fishing wire, uh, you know, and things like that. And there's some, a, a scene with somebody being hit by a truncheon that a, a policeman is carrying and there's blood spattering. Well, again, that's practical. And I, I chose deliberately for that uh, almost everybody featured is a dancer 
because I figured that I needed people that, that had amazing core strength if they were going to hold these poses for these extended periods of time, you know, because sometimes for uh, 10, 20, 30 seconds at a time, there's, there's, uh, there's a shot with a, one, of the, one of the young women literally sort of kicking her, her, her leg in the air and sort of leaning backwards. And it sort of, it looks exactly like a still. It's not, she was just doing it for real. I mean, I, 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 I envy that core strength. <laughs> <laughs> I could never do that, uh, not, for, not for five seconds. So yes, that was, that was augmented in various ways by uh, computer effects. Uh, the smoke is computer generated. There's a flame in there that's not real, but mostly it's completely practical. You were able to accomplish that on a low budget. Exactly. Yes, a very, very low budget. Very low. Oh, goodness. Jack, after finishing this project, do you think you'll reimagine other poems or literature into these short films? I would like to, yes. I, I saw it as a standalone project, but I've had this question come up quite a lot, and... So, you know, it may be that it's a project that has to have a, a further life. It will be quite interesting to explore perhaps slightly different uh, different periods, you know, maybe do something a little later. Uh, you know, maybe we could do something with Shakespeare or something, I don't know. I did actually look at an Anglo-Saxon poem uh, when I was trying to select the last couple I was going to work on, because I thought you know, the oldest one we have is uh, 1800 BCE. The, the newest is about 400, Common Era. And I thought, well, we could go a little later. Let's try, let's try the Anglo-Saxons. And they have an extraordinary poetic tradition. Beowulf, much too long, obviously. But uh, I did find this wonderful verse, which is, I think it's called The City. Um, I'll, I'll have to check that. But it is basically told from the point of view of an Anglo-Saxon person looking at the remains of the Roman civilization that had left England you know, 200 or so years before they arrived. And it, it's basically this sort of very spooky, very eerie, very kind of awe-inspiring verse about what must this people have been? Look at what they built. And yet they disappeared. They went, you know, what happened here? And so I, I thought, well, hang on, there are all these extraordinary shots going around of you know, empty Times Square in New York, empty Piccadilly Circus in London, you know, the Champs-Élysées in Paris. And what if I kind of match that to those? And I did it. And oh, my goodness, it was so depressing. <laughs> and I thought, no, this is not the time. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'll go back to that when the world is a little more sane. But actually, if you don't mind me sort of extending that thought a little, that is one reason why this project, I feel, took on a poignancy it didn't originally have because it was completed in lockdown. It was released when the pandemic is still, you know, raging. And yet the voices of our distant ancestors feel so modern. They feel so connected to us. We can imagine ourselves them just as we can actually imagine them in our shoes now. And the point to that is whatever we are going through, whatever hardships we are facing, this terrible time that we're living through, they went through worse and humanity survived. We continued, society went on, we grew, we're going to be okay. And that was kind of, I think the hidden message of this is, don't worry, it really is going to be okay. 
award-winning filmmaker and writer Jack Jewers. More information about the Inverse series is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, another song by the legendary Otis Redding, adapted as a children's storybook. Stay with us on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Carla Redding Andrews is the VP and Executive Director of the Otis Redding Foundation. She's also the daughter of the legendary musician Otis Redding. The foundation commissioned two children's books from the lyrics of Redding's famous songs. The first was Respect, which we learned about last fall. I spoke with the Atlanta-based illustrator Caitlin Shea O'Connor and Carla Redding Andrews, who explains the story of the latest book, The Dock of the Bay. Well, it's amazing at the illustrations uh, with the, the little cat uh, just really kind of reflecting, you know, he'll be sitting to the evening come waiting to catch his dinner, I assume, a, a fish. And he's sitting in the morning sun and he'll be sitting there till the evening comes, which uh, is amazing. The the um, excitement it brings to the eyes of kids as they see the, this little cat as his journey travels through uh, sitting on the dock of the bay. That little cat traveled 2,000 miles from home. <laughs> yes, he did. 2,000 miles he roamed from home uh, just to make the dock his home, he says. Oh, Caitlin, you are from Atlanta. I am. Yes, I've been um, living in Atlanta pretty much all my life. <laughs> well, please tell us how you conceived these wonderful illustrations for Dock of the Bay. Uh, well, obviously, I had wonderful inspiration, which was the song itself, um, which was already such a great starting point for me. Um, So the publisher reached out and really the only requirement was to include the lyrics. Beyond that, total free reign to just create whatever story you want. So that was a little bit overwhelming, but it was mostly just exciting. Um, (sighs) But I just wanted to obviously try and honor the song. It's such a classic. I grew up with it. It has that nostalgia for me, but I wanted to 
really sit down and listen to the lyrics and try and understand the feeling and the meaning and relate that for kids. So in order to make that relatable, like kind of came up with this story about this little cat who is just trying to catch his dinner and just can't catch a break, but finally has a friend to show some kindness at the very end of the book. Because interestingly enough, I feel like the lyrics, you know, growing up with it, everyone kind of has warm, fuzzy, happy feelings with it. But when I really listened to it, there's a bit of, you know, melancholy to it. So I wanted the story to have that bit of an arc where there was kind of a struggle. So that sort of just helped. The song really informed the story so much. Oh, yes. Well, Otis Redding's song and the lyrics he co-wrote with guitarist Steve Cropper Mm -hmm. tell the story of a lonely man. Mm -hmm. It's sorrowful. I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay I've had nothing to live for And look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on a darker bay, wasting time. How do you make this sad tale into something hopeful for children? Well, I feel like the beauty of the song is that it, it kind of is a sandwich. It, it sort of obviously repeats itself at the end. It starts with, you know, sitting on sitting in the morning sun, but sitting until the evening comes, and it ends with that too. So that sort of helps you start with the beginning, a middle, and an end. So it's going to end in a positive note. But yeah, it's like you don't wanna you don't wanna make this the saddest story ever, but I also know that children are so intuitive. So whether they're listening to this song or they're listening to a conversation where maybe they don't understand every single word, I feel like they understand the feeling. So I think they could latch on to that feeling of loneliness or sadness. But of course, yeah, I wanted it to resolve. And I wanted it to resolve with the help of a friend, too. Yes. And Carla, I was fascinated to learn that your dad really was inspired by his setting. After his famous performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, he spent time in Sausalito, California. Can you tell us more of the backstory? So yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting. And and once I learned uh, exactly how dad came up with this song, um, you know, my mother told me that he was just wanting to have a place of, of melancholy and water and, and just really a feel-good environment to, to be different. He wanted to write something different is what, what he told my mom. So being there in Sausalito and the inspiration of the, the bay and the water, which my, my father loved water and loved to swim. I think, you know, that's how this whole thing came about. And he was looking for a song that wasn't necessarily about his normal lyrics, uh, the, the begging and the pleading and the man and the woman and the love. But this was more of a, of a journey of, of himself, of, of a person just trying to, to do what people tell them to do, but not able to do what people tell them to do. And so the dock of the bay, sometimes for us, it's sad. But then on the other side, it's a, it's a happy 
kind of thought that he knew he wanted to change course in his songwriting. And certainly beginning the song uh, in Sausalito certainly made this song very different from anything that he had ever written. Amazing. And is it true that the whistling we hear before the fade out was not a part of his original plan? It was not a part of his original plans. You know, there there are versions with with seagulls in the background, uh, birds kind of chirping in the background, and then uh, the ending part, which Dad never really got to hear the complete song finished. Uh, the whistling came in, and I think it's it's just perfect. Carla Redding Andrews is the daughter of the late Otis Redding and executive director of the Otis Redding Foundation. With Atlanta-based illustrator Caitlin Shea O'Connor, their recent children's book is sitting on the dock of the bay. The San Francisco Bay Area is home to pianist Laura Downs, host of the NPR web series Amplify, which features visionary Black artists. She joins us in a moment on WABE Atlanta. What does the combination of a U.S. poet laureate, a renowned opera singer-chef, and several of today's foremost musicians share these days with Laura Downs? The answer is insightful conversation on the NPR web series Amplify with Laura Downs. Season two of the series has begun. New episodes are being added. And the host, pianist Laura Downs, joins us now via Zoom. Laura, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. We last spoke in early March about your Rising Sun recordings, music released to celebrate Women's History Month. And in November, we got to talk about Amplify, when it launched. For those who didn't hear that conversation, how would you describe Amplify? I think it's a chronicle of our time. These are conversations with fellow artists, thinkers, creatives, about how we're experiencing this, you know, the transformations of of this time. I think they are conversations that are very much about lineage and, you know, the shoulders that we stand on and really the steps that we plan to make, that we are making from where we stand now. I started having these conversations back in the fall because I realized that within my community of artists, you know, having been in this bizarre and surreal and sort of terrifying situation of having all of our work canceled and our lives disrupted, we were all experiencing a lot of fear and loss. And at the same time, though, we were reimagining our world and our lives. And I just saw that happening in real time. And I wanted to grab it and capture it. And it's been so fascinating. I can't believe it's a year in, you know, that we've, we just marked the anniversary of this pandemic and of this new reality. And I, I really feel that if we look back at these conversations, we see our world, our lives shifting as we went through. And 
in the midst of the pandemic, our national reckoning with racial injustice, horrifying events taking place. In the midst of all of this and, and a contentious, divided nation about the presidential election, all of that within this space, when most of us have been indoors and for many in your field, unemployed. So what did you learn from that first series of video conversations that has guided you in series two or has deepened your knowledge for what you want to accomplish in season two of Amplify? Oh, well, I mean, I think the first thing that I learned is that I wasn't alone, which was important for me to know on a personal level. And then I realized that none of us are alone and we were all feeling so alone. So having these conversations and realizing that we were all experiencing, of course, the same reality and of also having our individual responses, it just made connection very clear. And I wanted to continue to amplify that. Um, I think I've also realized that we can all take action. I think that's been the contradiction of this time, you know, our awareness about these tremendous flaws and faults and divisions and, um, devastating problems and our feeling that we were locked in our houses and we couldn't do anything about them. So I think these conversations have really illuminated the fact that whatever our language is, whatever our tools are, whether we're musicians, whether we're teachers, whether we're parents, whether we're friends, what, you know, whatever roles we take in our community, we can use those tools and change can happen. And I think that's a very healing awareness for all of us. Also history, history. I was just talking before our call this morning with a colleague who teaches at Vanderbilt and he's been using these interviews in his class. He's teaching a, a class about the history of music and his students are 18 and 19 and 20 years old and they don't have perspective on history. So for them to understand that, you know, all of our problems and also all of our triumphs come from a long lineage and that we're just moving, you know, we're ju we just keep moving. That's also really important and it's easy to forget. And including everyone's history. Yes. You have extraordinary guests on this series. How do you decide whom to interview? <laughs> I mean, there are so many people I want to talk to. I'm just trying to fit them all in. And, and this season, you know, we've expanded from only musicians to a wider range of people who all have connection to music, but, um, you know, are sort of moving in various spheres from literature to food to film. And it's great because music does connect all of us through our narratives and our, our perspectives. I, I think there's an incredible creative flourishing happening right now. There's so many ideas and projects flying around and within this atmosphere of reimagination. You know, I think for the arts specifically, we are at a crossroads when it comes to structures that have been 
breaking for a long time and are now broken, you know, and we have this deep awareness that we're entering into a new era as artists, as thinkers, as, you know, leaders in our field, we have to, and we want to take action to redefine what's coming next. So it's just, I mean, it's just fascinating to hear what's on people's minds. I was thrilled to listen to your conversation with the poet Rita Dove. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I have had the privilege of being with her on several occasions here in Atlanta, and they've been unforgettable. The first time we met, she talked about being a cellist and that she really wanted to become a professional cellist when she was about 16, but realized she was too shy to perform in public. No, I hadn't heard the shy part. I hadn't heard Yeah, that. it's kind of hard, uh-huh. hard to imagine Rita Dove is shy, uh-huh. <laughs> although yeah. she certainly has a gentleness about her, but all I could think was, no doubt you were a fine cellist, but oh, what the world would have missed if you had not pursued literature. Yes. So music informs so much of Rita Dove's work, her Sonata Mulatica collection of verse, a great example. Laura, Would you talk about your ties with Rita Dove? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So Rita and I connected in 2011. I was working with a composer named David Sanford, and he was writing a piece for me called Long Time Coming. It's sort of a long story. But that was a quote from President Obama's acceptance speech. It was also a response to a piece of Duke Ellington's called New World of Coming from the 1940s. then as well, we were kind of considering this past, present, future continuum. And there's this quote from Rita's poem, Testimonial. I gave my promise to the world and the world followed me here. And somehow that just resonated with me in the context of this project. And so I reached out and asked if we could use the poem. And you know, Rita loves collaborating with musicians and she has a long history of doing that. So we used the poem. There was a a spoken word artist who was part of that project. And then The words just stuck in my head. And before I knew it, it was, you know, 2015 and 2016. And as you know, I work with kids a lot. Um, And I started using that poem as a gateway to imagining personal promise, personal potential. I gave my promise to the world. What is your promise? What is it that you can give to the world? How does the world follow you? And so I've been all over America in all kinds of classrooms and multi-purpose rooms, posing that question to young kids. And it is mind blowing what happens when you do that, because 
Nobody asks them. Nobody asks them, what is your promise? What is the thing inside yourself that you treasure, that you see as valuable, that you want to contribute? We ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's a very different question. So it's, it's been a big part of my life. And then Rita and I, along the way, at one point I posted something on Facebook that I was doing a concert in Akron and she messaged me and she said, I'm going to be passing through Akron. That's where her parents, that's where she grew up. That's where her parents lived. And so we had this miraculous opportunity to do a performance together. It was at the, the main library in Akron. And of course she's, you know, a local hero there. And I just, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget being on stage with her and having her read that poem. And I was playing the music that, you know, it had inspired. So I just, I feel like she's just a, you know, fellow traveler. And I mean, I've never met anyone so generous and I mean, she's so kind and she's so warm and the entire world has a crush on her. And she just keeps being amazing. Yeah. Challenging cultural perceptions is at the heart of Amplify. And this comes through resoundingly with Chris Bowers. Full disclosure, I love Bridgerton on Netflix. <laughs> Have you watched it? Oh, oh my God. And you're not alone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was stunned to learn just yesterday that the Duke of Hastings, Simon Bassett, the actor that is, bowed out of the series. Chris was the composer for Bridgerton and the movie The Green Book. Would you talk about what emerged from your discussion with the composer Chris Bowers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that conversation really illuminated a lot of things about this lineage question, you know. So Green Book was about this musician, pianist, jazz pianist in the 50s named Don Shirley, who had a big career at the time. And his thing was doing kind of jazz versions of classical music. The movie is about this tour that he takes, a concert tour of the Deep South, and he has to hire a white driver to, you know, see him through all these dangerous situations. In the meantime, Chris, who grew up, however many years later, I don't know how old he is, you know, in this totally different environment where genre is fluid and you can be a young composer who is writing a violin concerto and a film score, you know, and whatever else at the same time. Chris became immersed in this world of Don Shirley's where there were these distinct and and strong lines between those art forms. So Don Shirley was forced into, you know, this kind of role as an entertainer. What he wanted to be was taken, he wanted to be taken seriously as a classical artist. And that pathway was not available to him as a black artist. 
So our conversation was about the trauma of that, you know, for earlier generations, for being pigeonholed or, or defined just by society's expectations. And how it is, though, that these hybrid forms that those artists developed are what led directly to the musical reality that Chris inhabits. Another line that I think it's not clearly understood, and it's so important to realize that, that, you know, out of adversity, out of lack of opportunity comes innovation. And then, then that innovation is inherited by the generation and we keep building. So I loved that conversation. It was about so many things, um, but I think that was the heart of it. At one point in the conversation, I love this. You quote Nina Simone saying she really wanted to be a concert pianist. And here you are a concert pianist and you'd love to be Nina Simone. Laura, what you do, whether you are at the keyboard or in conversation or teaching and mentoring kids is completely creative. And I hope you know how much we appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And just, you know, I'm following my heart and it's taking me to so many interesting places. Lara Downs, pianist and host of the NPR music series Amplify. You can find out more about recent episodes on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., two creative powerhouses, Tomer's Vuloon of the Atlanta Opera and John Ludwig of the Center for Puppetry Arts join forces for a new production of the Three Penny Opera. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.